From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. It remains to be seen if Niger and Gabon are throwing off French neocolonialism only to be captured by U.S. imperialism. But in the meantime, they want their country's natural resources to benefit Africans. We speak to historian, political analyst, and author Gerald Horn. The Nigerian authorities are seeking to raise the price of their export, speaking of uranium, by multiple orders of magnitude from 80 cents per unit to 200 euros per unit. And obviously that's very significant. And 50 years after a U.S.-backed coup in Chile, organizers remember the role of the AFL-CIO in ushering in a fascist state that murdered Chilean union leaders. We believe that the tens of thousands of workers who were killed by this American-supported coup uh, should be compensated. The AFL-CIO should be paying compensation to the workers and their families. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. First, some headlines. Several organizations, including Black Alliance for Peace and the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, protested outside the French embassy here in Washington on Saturday, September 2nd, to show solidarity with the people of Niger and oppose French neocolonialism in Africa. Since the military overthrew the French-backed president of Niger during the summer, the country has been targeted by crippling economic sanctions and by threats of military invasion. Those who spoke or were interviewed at the rally said it was necessary to create visible actions of solidarity around the African diaspora for Niger and for the sovereignty of all of Africa. Here are some of those who spoke out at the protest, beginning with Sean Blackman of the Answer Coalition. I hear you say, hands off Africa. Hands off Africa. France out of Africa. France out of Africa. Shut down Africa. Shut down Africa. Let me hear you make some noise if you're for the total liberation of the African continent. What we're seeing happening with our people in the Sahel is a part of centuries of neo-colonial exploitation and imperialist intervention. For centuries, Africa has had its democracy violated, its sovereignty violated, its right to self-determination violated. They've stolen resources. They even stole people. That's how my ancestors got to this country. They didn't ask. They were kidnapped and forced to build this country for free, and they're still exploiting us and oppressing us centuries after the fact. Africa belongs to Africans. Africa united will never be defeated. Africa united will never be defeated. I'm out here today standing with um, the Niger people, um, the French people are in Niger, and now they put a sanction on the people of Niger because France wants the uranium that is in Niger. The military has taken over the country, and the people of Niger are standing with the military. As you know, uh, July 26, this, this year, military took uh, power in Niger, 
and uh, France is trying to to bring back the president Bazoum who just lost the, the, the power. So that's why we're here to say no to France, to uh, interference of France in Africa. Because what um, France is doing to Africa is inhumane. France did not leave Africa in terms of colonization. France continued to colonize Africans. To this day, 14 African countries are still being economically and sociopolitically enslaved by France. What we are doing here is to ask France to leave Niger Republic alone. Let Nigerians live their life. They have the right to their resources. We are calling on the world to stand with the people of Africa and Niger in particular, so they can lift the sanction and so that ECOWAS will not go where war on the poor people of Niger that are already wealthy, but they are not enjoying their wealth. The children are dying at sea to make it to Europe to look for a better life. In the meantime, they are one of the richest countries when it comes to the mineral. So we, the Africans, are united now. More on the situation in Niger and in the Sahel of Africa after headlines. United Auto Workers have rejected a counteroffer by General Motors as part of ongoing negotiations to avoid a strike, authorized to begin on September 14th. On Thursday, September 7th, UAW President Sean Fain said in a statement, quote, After refusing to bargain in good faith for the past six weeks, only after having federal labor board charges filed against them, GM has come to the table with an insulting proposal that doesn't come close to an equitable agreement for America's auto workers. GM either doesn't care or isn't listening when we say we need economic justice at GM by 11.59 p.m. on September 14th. The clock is ticking, end quote. In late August, 97% of participating UAW members voted to authorize a strike if the big three automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, don't agree to a fair contract by September 14th, when the union's current contracts with the companies are all set to expire. The UAW represents 150,000 workers at the three companies. The union has since filed unfair labor practice charges against GM and Stellantis, accusing the companies of illegally refusing to bargain in good faith. Hospital workers are also taking action for better wages and working conditions. Dozens of healthcare workers were arrested in Los Angeles on Labor Day after sitting in the street outside a Kaiser Permanente facility to demand that providers address dangerously low staffing levels at hospitals in California and across the country. The civil disobedience came as the workers prepared for what could be the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history. Late last month, 85,000 Kaiser Permanente employees represented by the coalition of Kaiser Permanente unions began voting on whether to authorize a strike over the nonprofit system's alleged unfair labor practices during ongoing contract negotiations. Their current contract expires on September 30th. A report released Thursday by the private by the private equity stakeholder project revealed how huge private equity firms like Blackstone are both massive funders 
of fossil fuel projects, which cause climate disasters, and also new investors or buyers of disaster cleanup companies such as Servpro. The report documents the beginnings of the shift that took in the recovery industry following Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Before that historic storm, cleanup work in a given area was usually done by smaller local companies. The report includes a list of 14 major disaster relief companies owned by private equity firms, five of which also invest in fossil fuels. For example, Blackstone, which owns SurfPro, also bought Ohio's General James Gavin Power Plant, one of the leading single sources of coal pollution in the United States. In 2017, in another example, Louisiana-based disaster relief company, the Lemoyne Company, also manages Lemoyne Pipeline Services. The company is owned by the private equity firm Bernhard Capital Partners. Five stop cop city demonstrators, including faith leaders, were arrested Thursday morning after chaining themselves to construction equipment at Atlanta's proposed public safety training center just outside of city limits in DeKalb County, Georgia. The arrestees are Reverend Jeff Jones, a Unitarian Universalist volunteer community minister, Reverend David Dunn, a Unitarian Universalist minister, Ayola Omolara Kaplan, an Atlanta-based revolutionary artist, Atlanta resident Lalita Martin, and Georgia resident Timothy Sullivan, according to the Atlanta Community Press Collective. Quote, we have tried to get justice in the courts. We have tried to get justice using our politicians. And unfortunately, they have betrayed and failed us, said Mary Hooks of the Movement for Black Lives, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Quote, so when our government systems fail, that is when the people must stand up and take action, end quote, she said. The people's injunction to halt construction came after the Georgia Republican Attorney General Chris Carr announced Tuesday that a grand jury indicted 61 cop city protesters under the state's racketeer influence and corrupt organizations or RICO Act. More on those state indictments after headlines. And finally, in culture and media, the controversy about the so-called Cop City militarized police training facility is happening in and around Atlanta, where so many iconic struggles for civil and human rights were organized by the late Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Chantel James covered a talk by the author of a new memoir, which includes discussions with King and the great Paul Robeson. The Center for American Progress hosted Clarence B. Jones, Martin Luther King Jr.'s one-time speechwriter and lawyer, for a conversation with its president, Patrick Gaspard. Jones's memoir, Last of the Lions, gives many recollections of the historic times he lived in and his close relationships with many important figures in the struggle as both colleague and friend. One of his anecdotes at the event was on seeking counsel from Paul Robeson when he was a black student on Columbia University's football team. Um, Paul, Paul, Robeson, Paul Robeson. So, you know, I was active. I, was, I, loved, I loved playing football. I mean, I loved his acting book. And so uh, 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 there were 3,000 men. I, I came to Columbia, Columbia University in uh, uh, yeah, 1949, 1950. Yeah, I was in class. Uh, anyway, I played football. And, um, and I also was active in uh, politics. And 
And my friends on campus, when I was active in politics, I said, I can't be with you on Friday and Saturday because I got to go to football training. So, and they would be critical of me, you know, and it, it actually made me feel guilty. Like, man, if you, you know, you say you, you say you're, I didn't use these words, but they said you were with us. How come you're never out here on Saturday handing out leaflets? So I had met, in the interest of time, I won't just tell you how, but I met Paul Robeson and I became friends with him. And and I looked at, I mean, he was like, oh my God, I mean, but this Paul Robeson, you know, he went, he went to a Rutgers University, he was all, all American. Well, and he was scholar. Scholar, you know. And, and and I told, I said, Mr. Robeson, I said, you know, my, my, my friends at Columbia College, you know, they criticized me because I, I'm not handing out leaflets with them on Saturday because I'm playing football. And Paul Robeson would say, you go back, and he has a deep voice, young man, you go back and you tell your young friends that one touchdown by you, a Negro at Bakersfield, Bakersfield was with a big, one touchdown by you on a Saturday afternoon, a Negro carrying that football with 40,000 people in those stands will have a greater impact on all those white people than anything goes deep can say. Jones also shared the story of how Dr. King addressed a sermon to him specifically to sway him to the cause of working closely with movement leaders. His memoir is out now. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And finally, information about two actions this month that On the Ground intends to cover the Labor Education Project on AFL-CIO International Operations, LAPEO, an international group of labor activists, scholars, and journalists, are holding two actions to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the horrific 1973 military coup in Chile. The coup and subsequent brutal dictatorship were aided and supported by the U.S. government of Richard Nixon and the AFL-CIO of George Meany. The project is holding an educational conference at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in Northwest D.C. on September 10th from 1.30 to 4.30 p.m. And the following day, September 11th at 12 noon, a public rally in front of the AFL-CIO headquarters on 16th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. will be held to demand transparency, reparations, and a cessation by the AFL-CIO of funding anti-worker activities inside other countries. More on this story later in the show. And finally, finally, 500 organizations across the United States and world have endorsed the September 17th March to End Fossil Fuels happening in New York City starting at 1 p.m. at 56th and Broadway in Manhattan. The online home for the march is endfossilfuels.us. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
boys and girls, listen up. You can be anything in the world, and God we trust. An architect, doctor, maybe an actress, but nothing comes easy. It takes much practice. Like, I met a woman who's becoming a star. She was very beautiful, leaving people in awe. Singing songs, Lena Horn, but the younger version hung with the wrong person. Got a strong one at her when cocaine, sniffing up drugs, all in the nose. Could have died so young, now looks ugly and old. No fun, cause now when she reaches for hugs, people hold their breath. Cause she smells of corrosion and death. Watch the company you keep and the crowd you bring. Cause they came to do drugs and you came to sing. So if you're gonna be the best, I'ma tell you how. Put your hand in the air and take the vow. I know I can. I know I can. Be what I wanna be. Be what I wanna be. If I work hard at it. If I work hard at it. I'll be where I wanna be. Listen again. This is for grown-looking girls who's only 10. The ones who watch videos and do what they see. As cute as can be. Up in the club with fake ID. Careful, for you meet a man with HIV. You can host a TV like Oprah Winfrey. Whatever you decide, be careful. Some men be rapists. So act your age. Don't pretend to be older than you are. Give yourself time to grow. You're thinking he can give you wealth, but so young boys. You can use a lot of help, you know. You're thinking life's all about smoking weed and ice. You don't want to be my age and can't read and write. Begging different women for a place to sleep at night. Smart boys turn them in and do whatever they wish. If you believe you can achieve, then say it like this. I know I can. I know I can. Be what I wanna be. Be what I wanna be. If I work hard at it. If I work hard at it. I'll be where I wanna be. I'll be where I wanna now, be. Now, go. We came to this country. We were kings and queens, never porch monkeys. There was empires in Africa called Kush, Timbuktu, where every race came to get books to learn from black teachers who taught Greeks and Romans, Asian Arabs, and gave them gold. When gold was converted to money, it all changed. Money then became empowerment for Europeans. The Persian military invaded. They heard about the gold, the teachings, and everything sacred. Africa was almost robbed naked. Slavery was money, so they began making slave ships. Egypt. Was the place that Alexander the Great went? He wasn't shocked that the mountains were black faces. Shot up their nose to impose what basically still goes on today. You see, if the truth is told, the youth can grow. They learn to survive until they gain control. Nobody says you have to be gangsters, hoes. Read more, learn more, change the globe. Ghetto children, do your thing. Hold your head up, little man. You're a king. Young princess, when you get your wedding ring, your man is saying she's my queen. I know I can. I know I can. Be what I wanna be. Be what I wanna be. If I work hard at it. If I work hard at it. I'll be where I wanna be. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for more international and national news, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, 
the Moist Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, and the author of many books, including most recently, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. And he'll tell us about an upcoming book during our conversation. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, before we ran our three-part series honoring Randall Robinson, an advocate to free South Africa, we were talking about the coup, or some people calling it a military takeover in Niger, and also just throughout West Africa, so much happening. And so why don't we just open up with an update on the latest? The last I read or the last news report I heard was that the French president had given the green light, you know, as as some type of <laughs> colonial master, green light to uh, ECOWAS, the uh, West, West African community of states, to actually militarily intervene in Niger. Well, that has been reported. And I should also say that with regard to recent events in Niger and also Gabon, uh, due south, which also has endured a regime change in recent days, one conclusion is clear, and that is that French neocolonialism is in dire crisis. It's on life support. However, before you uncork the champagne bottles, we also need to mention that what comes afterwards is not altogether clear, because we know that this tumult in French neocolonial Africa is taking place against the backdrop of tensions between Paris and Washington. Some of us recall that in 1959, prior to throwing his hat into the ring to run for the U.S. presidency, then-Senator John F. Kennedy was a stinging critic of French colonialism in Algeria, and that led some to think that he was an anti-imperialist. But actually, what he wanted to do was elbow aside France on behalf of U.S. imperialism. And some of the recent events coming out of that part of Africa are of concern. With regard to France and Niger, the French ambassador is under siege. The new regime is asking him to depart sooner rather than later. He says that he does not recognize the new regime, so he's not going anywhere. They cut off, apparently, water and electricity to his diplomatic compound. But as this was unfolding, a new U.S. ambassador arrived in Niger. And this is a country, the United States, that has been rather lethargic in appointing ambassadors to various countries. Likewise, there have been raucous demonstrations at the French base in Niger, not so much at the U.S. drone base in Niger, on the hmm. other hand, uh, it's important to point out, recent reports indicate that the Nigerian authorities are seeking to raise the price of their export, speaking of uranium, by multiple orders of magnitude from 80 cents per unit to 200 euros per unit. And obviously, that's very significant. It'll probably lead to a hike in electricity prices in France uh, may even shake the Macron regime to its foundation. So I think it's important for your audience to recognize that the situation uh, 
in this part of Africa is rather fluid and certainly is fluid in Gabon. Uh, you know that the erstwhile leader, Ali Bongo Ndimba, uh, who followed his father, Omar Bongo, in ruling this oil-rich country. Altogether, they ruled for almost 56 years. Now, the concerning aspect there is that the man who has replaced Ali Bongo Ndimba, on the one hand, uh, he is a major property holder in Silver Spring and Hyattsville, believe it or not. Maryland. <laughs> Correct. Not, not Gabon. <laughs> and on the other hand, uh, he's freed political prisoners. So once again, you have these contradictory aspects uh, taking place. Uh, I should also say that uh, black Americans were implicated with regard to the previous regime, Ali Bongo Ndimba styled himself as a kind of musician and aficionado of uh, Black American cultural capital. Uh, he was a fan of the king of pop, Michael Jackson, who visited Gabon. James Brown, uh, Michael Jackson's lineal ancestor, was also popular uh, in uh, Gabon. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, the contemporary actor, carries a Gabonese passport. And so... And also Consortium News had a piece this week uh, saying that uh, he was a protege of Barack Obama, that Obama had groomed him to kind of be a new leader in Africa. Ali Bongo Ndimbo. Yes. Hmm. Well, that's interesting since they're contemporaries and actually uh, it's hard to see how you groom a contemporary, but, you know, I'll credit that story. But once again, back to Gabon, uh, it's unclear how the regime is going to deal with pre-existing opposition figures. Foremost amongst that group is the man we know as Jean Ping. If those in your audience are scratching their heads about his surname, uh, his father is Chinese and his mother is Gabonese. He was a stern critic of the Bongos, was also a, a man of Pan-African renown, and so far as he was highly regarded at the African Union in Ethiopia, actually ran against uh, Mr. Bongo a, a few years ago. It's unclear what role, if any, he will play with regard to this new regime. So in any case, as I said, the, these situations are very fluid, but one conclusion we can safely arrive at is that French neocolonialism in Africa is on its deathbed. One of the things that commentators here, politicians here, the kind of terms that they use in, in describing the coup in Africa is terms like democracy, lack of democracy, you know, freedom, human rights. These are the kinds of issues raised when it comes to the Gabonese and the people of Niger, you know, exercising their rights to sovereignty, self, you know, self-direction. But at the same time this week, and I, I know this is a, a, a quick shift and I, I know we want to go to South Africa, but 
I want to raise it in the context of what's happening in the Sahel because I was really taken aback by the indictments of 61 cop city protesters on RICO charges. Like these are the types of charges that were designed for mobsters, for the mafia, for, you know, organized crime, I should say, in this country. And we've seen them apply to these uh, protesters and it's chilling. It's a frightening thing when you think about the um, the escalation against the African People's Socialist Party, against uh, peace activists uh, attacked by the New York Times not that long ago and threatened with uh, some type of congressional investigation by the likes of Mark Rubio. So I just wanted to to bring that in because, you know, these are people being criticized for supposedly not observing the democratic rights of their population and the democratic process. But here we have this a steady erosion right here in the U.S. Well, and then your audience should also know that the so-called RICO charges that are being brought against these anti-cop city protesters, they should not confuse that charge with the charges being brought by the prosecutor from Atlanta, Fannie Willis, against Donald J. Trump and 18 of his comrades with regard to seeking to tamper with the vote in the state of Georgia. My understanding is that this current indictment is being brought by state authorities. And keep in mind that in the state of Georgia, at that level, uh, there has been an effort by the Republican Party to actually clip the wings of Fannie Willis. Your audience may recall that uh, these state authorities are dominated by Republicans, including Governor Brian Kemp, who ran a number of controversial races against Stacey Abrams, an alumnus of Spelman College, who was treated rather shabbily. And in fact, as I understand it, is now teaching at least part-time at Howard University in the District of Columbia. So you are correct to raise an alarm about this RICO indictment, this latest RICO indictment. And likewise, uh, I have to say, I, I feel a tad uncomfortable even using that acronym RICO. <laughs> racketeering, influence, corrupt organizations, because obviously, in part, it was meant as a slur against the Italian-American community, as if that were the only community that was involved in organized crime, which we know not to be the case. Right, right. And I didn't really think about that. Let's just say organized crime, <laughs> a term that we we tried to not use. And especially in the post-Occupy era, when so many of the crimes of Wall Street were uh, exposed, we should say just the larger corporate capitalist structure, we have a deeper understanding now what organized crime really is. So I know that you wanted to talk about South Africa and U.S. relations, and, and maybe we can just tie this into an update on Ukraine. We know that in recent days, the U.S. has authorized the sending of weapons with depleted uranium to the battlefield. And 
we know that these weapons have a horrific history. This country, the United States, is the only country that ever used an atomic weapon on another people, right? And so we are also not signature to the treaties involving cluster munitions, and those have been sent to Ukraine. Now they're authorizing these weapons with depleted uranium. This, these are radioactive particles, uh, uh, munitions, and we use them in Iraq and where the people are still suffering tremendous birth defects. They've told the women of Fallujah not to have children. And so these are crimes of crimes against humanity. And yet they're just kind of spoken of in passing and, and even agreed to, even given the nod by people who, who say, you know, Ukraine must win this war. But uh, anyway, so I wanted to bring that up in the context of, I, I know that, U.S.-South Africa relations are connected to the Ukraine crisis. Well, yes. The latest controversy has been an allegation by the U.S. ambassador in Pretoria who charged that a few months ago, the South Africans were loading weapons onto a Russian vessel to be taken to the battlefield of Ukraine. The South African authorities did an investigation and demonstrated to the satisfaction of most impartial observers that that was a false accusation, but it's reflective of a larger crisis uh, between South Africa and the United States. Part of it has to do with South Africa's neighbor, speaking of Zimbabwe, which had an election a few days ago where the ruling party, ZANU-PF, walked away, it is said, with another victory, both for the re-election of President Emerson Mnangagwa, as well as accumulating a substantial majority in Parliament. The observers of the European Union, the United States, and their allies uh, were hotly opposed to that result. They say that there were human rights violations. Interestingly enough, uh, South Africa disagreed uh, President Ramaphosa actually showed up in Harare for the inauguration uh, of the president, uh, President Mnangagwa. A delegation from his party, the African National Congress, uh, also endorsed uh, this particular result. And there is fundamentally a split in the region because Zimbabwe's northern neighbor, speaking of Zambia, uh, adamantly dissented and sided with the United States, and that does not bode well, particularly since we know that some months ago, Vice President Harris of the United States visited Lukasaka and embraced the new regime of President Hichilema. And so we're going to have to keep an eye on that situation in the southern cone of Africa to make sure that Zambia is not being manipulated against its two more powerful neighbors. But South Africa is in the crosshairs, not least, because it is not only a member of the rising power that is the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which had an important summit in Johannesburg uh, days ago where they accepted uh, new members. In fact, uh, we can connect the previous story in the, insofar as the rising 
of the BRICS, in particular the BRICS Bank, is a threat to the U.S.-dominated World Bank, which is headquartered in Washington, D.C., which plays an outsized role in terms of the global political economy. Uh, Washington is not smiling upon South Africa's relationship with the BRICS, even though South Africa says that uh, they're not necessarily partial to Russia's position in Ukraine. They pledge they're neutral. Uh, But Washington does not necessarily accept that particular point of view. And I should also say that uh, Washington, even though it is not necessarily verbalized, uh, is also discomfited by the fact that the African National Congress government uh, in Pretoria is in an alliance with the South African Communist Party, which holds important uh, cabinet slots uh, in the South African government. Yes, anti-communism has yet to disappear from the United States of America, in case some were wondering. And then there are some other uh, disturbing aspects of the bilateral relations. For example, if you happen to tune in to the Voice of America, which broadcasts regularly about events in the southern cone of Africa, their South African correspondent, Darren Taylor, is not only an adamant and hostile critic, of the African National Congress government, but he also happens to be a correspondent for the Epic Times, which is this lunatic uh, anti-China, anti-communist rag that you can find uh, in Washington, D.C., if you can stomach it. So it's rather curious that the Biden regime uh, would countenance uh, this bile emerging from the Voice of America, uh, from this uh, pro-Trump correspondent, when we are told that Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, is a mortal enemy of Mr. Biden. Well, well, that's that's certainly something that we should watch and and take note of. Uh, very interesting, but there are a number of inconsistencies around how Biden, and, and I know we have to wrap up, we're running out of time, but we there are a lot of inconsistencies around Biden and the notion of the freedom of the press and free media. And that's certainly understood by those of us who are involved in the Free Julian Assange movement and how that case is so tied up with newspapers like the New York Times and other news organizations that are favorable to him that have actually come out to say, you know, this case needs to be dropped. So there's no consistency there around issues of the press at all. But anyway, um, you've certainly given us a a tremendous update on in Africa, the Sahel, South Africa, and, and also issues here in the United States. So before we sign off, I know um, you have a new book coming out in weeks, and if it's not out already, and we're certainly going to be telling people more about that in the coming weeks, but do you want to give us a little information about it? Well, one has emerged already. Uh, It's entitled Acknowledging Radical Histories, Conversations with Gerald Horn, edited by a young professor in the state of Colorado. It's much more, as the title suggests, conversational than some of my previous works, although I'm fundamentally summarizing a lot of 
books that I have written. So for those looking for a quick and dirty summary of some Cliff Notes. Exactly. <laughs> this is the book for you. And then within a few days, uh, the book will drop entitled, I Dare Say, A Gerald Horn Reader. This is a collection of articles and essays that I've published in recent years. Once again, uh, it's edited by a young scholar, this time in Great Britain. And let me bring forward what should be evident, which is that as a person who's probably seen more yesterdays than I'll see tomorrows, I see it as part of my duty and obligation nowadays to try to push into center stage younger scholars. And in part, that's the purpose of these two books. Okay, well, we certainly look forward to those books and letting our listeners know more about them in the coming weeks. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you. This is not a party, party just for you. We just wanna live, live more than a few. Iraq. Yeah. Look at us blowing up. Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. This is Iraq. Look at us blowing up. Look how I'm throwing up. Prime Minister on the up. Yeah, this is Iraq. Corrupt in the area. Varsity hysteria. Saying we gon' take care of ya. Nah, nah. I'ma get shot for this. Nah, nah. You might get blocked from this. Nah, nah. I'ma go train a kid. Nah, nah. Wash up the innocence. Nah, nah. Sense for blood like yeah, yeah. I'm so bored like yeah, yeah. Let's go blow like yeah. Braka. Iraq. Hey. Look at us blowing up. Yeah. 
Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. هذا العراق. بدايتك آخرتك. جوازك آخرتك. بس دير بالك لك لا تغلط. Look how they freaking out. Take your clothes off. Rape. Taking photo. Rape. I'm so petty. They don't get it. They're immune. This is telly. That's the news. Media blackout. Then it's lights out. Keep sniffing the tar. We'll lift the door, my yahmar. Barrels on barrels on barrels. Food for barrels and barrels. Ali Burton, the demolished. Delivered the mission accomplished. on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther averam well un- until 2001 september 11th had a different meaning in chile in all of south america and perhaps in all of what used to be called the third world now called the emerging world or the global south thomas o'rourke has more September 11th marks the 50th anniversary of the overthrow of the democratically elected Chilean government of Salvador Allende by Chilean armed forces led by Army General Augusto Pinochet. It is now a matter of historical record that members of the U.S. government under President Richard Nixon, including Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, as well as the AFL-CIO Labor Federation under George Meany, conspired with Chilean reactionary forces to carry out this coup d'etat. Recently, a group calling itself the Labor Education Project on AFL-CIO International Operations, LAPAO, has emerged with a mission to expose the reactionary role that the AFL-CIO and its international office, Solidarity Center, plays on the international scene. I recently spoke to one of the founders of LaPau, Steve Zeltzer of San Francisco, about events here in Washington. Steve is a longtime Pacifica programmer focusing on international labor issues. Steve, welcome to On the Ground. Please tell Thanks, us Brad. please tell our audience about LaPau and what it is what it is planning for the 50th anniversary of the overthrow of the Allende government. Well, the Labor Project uh, Labor Education Project and AFL-CIO International Operations is, as you said, doing education on the role of the AFL-CIO International Operations. Most workers in this country don't know that the Solidarity Center, which is taken over from the AIFLD, operates in 62 countries and uh, got $75 million from the National Endowment for Democracy, which is funded by the U.S. government. And the this operation is secret from the workers of the United States. It's really, in our view, an appendage of the U.S. government, and its predecessor, the AIFLD, was involved in actually helping to organize and support the overthrow of the Chilean government and instituting neo-economic policies of Milton Friedman and the Chicago gang in Chile. So we feel that American workers who are members of the AFL-CIO 
need to get the information about what the AFL-CIO is doing and also demand that they open their books, which they refuse to do. We believe that the tens of thousands of workers uh, who are killed by this American-supported coup uh, should be compensated. The AFL-CIO should be paying compensation to the workers and their families uh, because they were centrally involved in the overthrow. And we also believe that uh, we need to have direct links between the workers of Chile, and they're going to be Chilean workers speaking at our uh, educational event that we're having on September the 10th at the Martin Luther King Library in Washington, and also uh, at the rally that we're going to have in front of the AFL-CIO on September the 11th uh, at 12 noon. We want to have the voices of Chilean workers to recall what happened and to learn from that, because the rise of fascism now in the United States is a danger. And the U.S. government was involved in supporting right-wingers and fascists to actually overthrow the government in Chile um, for the purpose of protecting U.S. multinational corporations, Anaconda and others. And uh, it, that those policies continue. There's recently been the overthrow of the Bolivian government and the Peruvian government by uh, the United States. And we think that this record of intervention, this record of uh, not just the U.S. government, the AFL-CIO intervening and the affairs of the people of, of Latin America, and for that matter, the people of the world, needs to come to an end. What are the demands, the specific demands LaPau is making on this current AFL-CIO leadership? The specific demands are that the books be opened on the AFL-CIO's role in the Chilean coup. Um, also, that the uh, workers and others who were killed be compensated. Also, we believe that the AFL-CIO should stop taking uh, the money from uh, the U.S. government through the National Endowment for Democracy. And we also believe they should report to the American working class, the unions, about the role of the AFL-CIO in Chile and other countries. So workers are informed about what their union is doing uh, in our name. And that's, we say, uh, there needs to be openness and democracy and transparency. And that is not presently the case. Liz Schuler, the president of the AFL-CIO and the executive board, uh, do not want to even a debate on the role of the AFL-CIO within within the labor movement. Um, they want to crush debates on Palestine and many international issues. We feel if we're going to have a democratic labor movement, we have these we have to have these kind of debates and discussions and a transparency about where the money that they're getting from the U.S. government is going internationally and where it went in Chile. Steve Zelter, thank you very much uh, for on the ground. This is Thomas O'Rourke in Washington. Thank you, Thomas, for having me. For more information about LaPau, you can go to their website, which is aflcio-int.education, or email info at aflcio-int.information. The website has a lot of information about not only events this year, but past events they've held, including about the AFL-CIO's role in the interference in Venezuela, for example. For those not able to get to D.C. or those listening to this show or podcast after the events, you may be able to get information on the website about how you can access a stream of some or all of the events for this year, marking this 50th anniversary. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. 
are also linked to all of my shows on my Instagram page, Esther underscore Averum. That's I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. You can also subscribe on our podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averum, on all your podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Our podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included I Can by Nas, This is a Rock by INZ, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.